Party candidate for Governor of Maryland in 2026. This is my show, and I'm using it to highlight interesting people and ideas that help me to understand what is and what is possible. Guests on this show do not necessarily support my campaign, the Green Party. They have agreed to come on to discuss ideas and issues. Today's guest is Lawrence Grand Prix, Director of Research for Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. His focuses include drug policy, criminal justice, police accountability, and community-based economic educational development. He's the co-author of The Black Book, and his work has been featured in The Guardian, The Baltimore Sun, Time Magazine, and Black Agenda Report. Well, welcome to the Go Green 2026 podcast. Um, we're back again this time uh, with Lawrence Grand Prix. Uh, we did a, our last episode with Lawrence about communal approaches to uh, to drug policy, to criminalization, to addiction, and to treatment. And tonight we're picking up the discussion with Lawrence, and we're talking about uh, we're talking about communal approaches to violence um, and ways that we can figure out how to reduce the violence um, that that is uh, plaguing black communities uh, in Baltimore and across Maryland. Welcome, Lawrence. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on, Andy. Yeah, thank you, thank you. And you know, you, you see we're, we're adding a little bit of production each time we do this so that we can get this more and more, uh, more and more together. Um, and you know, we've, we've now layered that uh, the intro over the song and we're just trying to get this together to be into a good show. And I appreciate you being here today, Lawrence. And uh, um, But yeah, let's get to the discussion. So before we dive into um, this discussion about black community responses to violence, can you talk to us about some of the work that you've done in this area? Sure, sure. So LBS, we're a think tank. We do policy advocacy on a variety of issues. A lot of our work revolves around working to get resources to grassroots organizations, and especially grassroots organizations that do direct services with uh, people in the Black community who operationalize a liberatory methodology or culturally responsive methodology. So uh, my understanding around community violence interventions came around 2014, 2015, maybe even 2013, when I heard of something called Safe Streets, wasn't quite sure what it was, but I heard that they were being um, potentially targeted for blackmail by the Baltimore Police Department. The story has not been confirmed by independent sources, but some of the uh, Safe Streets is a violence intervention program uses people who are formerly street involved, group involved, some people say gang involved, to do violence mediation in the community. And they've been finding caches of drugs in some of the Safe Streets offices. Many people were saying, doesn't quite make sense for you to have drugs in the Safe Streets office, even if you're a Safe Streets employee who used drugs or sold drugs, you wouldn't have them in the office. Um, so it raised the idea that potentially drugs are being planted. And this is obviously before the realizations around the Gun Trace Task Force, which was revealed to be essentially a criminal gang operating in the Baltimore Police Department. And the rumors had Detective Herschel being uh, flagged as the potential person who was doing that blackmailing. And it became very important to me to think about these alternative ways to deal with conflict and violence, because if Safe Streets works, we don't need to fund police so much. And it seems like the police knew that, because why else would they be potentially framing them? Um, so that really started the work to understand more about the space, understand 
the distinction between black grassroots perspectives on C community violence intervention. Some people call this CVI. So understand things about the gang truce that was done in the 90s with the Bloods and the Crips, understanding the work of the Nation of Islam, understanding the work of you know, faith-based organizations, how that parallels but also differs from the work being done in the so-called public health epidemiological violence as a disease model that's been predominant in many sort of um, foundation-funded mainstream nonprofit approach to CVI. And we've really been working to, you know, talk to people locally, talk to people statewide to really get money to a variety of organizations that do community violence intervention, particularly We Are Us, which is a grassroots community organization here in Baltimore City that we felt was just doing really good work, but just not getting resources. So just talking to people in the mayor's office, the governor's office, um, really trying to push resources to the ground to people that not just us, but community has deemed as uh, experts in dealing with the types of youth who are most disconnected, the types of people who are um, most adjacent to street life and street organizations that are drivers of violence and just understanding more about the public health complex, the nonprofit industrial complex, how this relates to issues of economic development and gentrification and building an analysis that really synthesizes these issues and pushes for grassroots investments in ways that counter the co-option that we see of many grassroots desires and grassroots organizational methodologies and really give them the space to get resources themselves and to flourish themselves. Yeah, excellent. And we'll dive into each of those topics um, in a minute. But last time we talked, we discussed Black communal approaches to drug criminalization, addiction, and treatment. Uh, tonight, as we're talking about Black community-based approaches to violence and violence pre prevention, can you talk a little bit about how these two issues are related to each other? Absolutely. So there's a relationship on, I guess you could say the programmatic level, and there's a relationship on the institutional level. On a programmatic level, the assumption is that much of the violence is driven by people dealing drugs and people fighting for corners dealing drugs. That's not exactly as true as it was in the 90s. It's not to say that never happens, but it does happen but it's not the primary driver of violence today. Some of you might know in the 90s, you were dealing with cartels breaking cocaine from Colombia. These were often through hierarchical unified street organizations like the uh, Bloods on the West Coast. So it just, you had a dynamic of top-down control. You had a dynamic that corners were really valuable when you were selling crack because you were just people were dosing multiple times a day. You can't necessarily dose multiple times a day on heroin, you overdose. But cocaine is very fast acting, very potent, very short time to metabolize in the body. So you, you were beefing for corners. You were having that drug-driven street violence because of the money in the, in the streets. That money dried up in the early 90s. And you have a lot of people operating on a script that's based upon New Jack City. That's not true. But what is true is that you have community groups of people living in neighborhoods that have been disinvested and targeted, not just disinvested, but also targeted for gentrification and over-policing. And there have been generations of people in these neighborhoods that have been disconnected from the mainstream economy, disconnected to services, disconnected from respecting the rule of law because the police were not deemed respectable because they were corrupt and failed to solve crimes that you actually cared about, like when your friends got killed. And in that reality, the drivers of conflict get combined with substance use. So you have an increase in potency in cannabis. You have the rise of 
uh, coding, you have to write the prescription drugs. And it's well known that, you know, alcohol and poly substance use is tied with um, the actual moment of committing a crime of violence. It's not necessarily that you're an addict, but the intoxicated state, you know, many people can't, you know, shoot somebody sober. Um, and, and so you have these drivers where people feel the need to escape, to deal with their feelings of trauma, using street drugs. And that creates an environment where you obviously can easily be addicted through trauma, to the trauma of being a victim of crime or the trauma of being a perpetrator of crime. You know, so you have this complex reality, but you also have a connection on the institutional level. In both instances, the, the move to push these issues of addiction and violence away from policing issues, away from personal failings needed to be deterred by police, to public health issues needing to be dealt with by services, have the positive impact of decreasing the amount of people incarcerated on some of the lower ends of the scale for addiction and, and so-called violent crime. I mean, violent crime is everything from you know, having a loud argument to murder, and not all of it requires, obviously, arrest. But you have the flip side of that response, which is public health institutions, academic institutions, leaving themselves experts in the ways to address these public health issues, bringing public health methodologies from the colonial public health practices overseas, bringing abstract academic quantification-focused methodologies to very deep, complex, psychological, spiritual issues of addiction and violence, and sometimes well-meaning, um, but I think sometimes very much understanding that they want to monopolize this growing industry of addiction treatment and violence prevention services, basically deeming themselves the experts in the space, and at least in Baltimore, it's not true everywhere, but in Baltimore, demanding grassroots organizations literally subcontract under them to get the resources, but also functionally and epistemologically, grassroots organizations become appendages of their epistemology and their practices, not giving the space for grassroots organizations to actually get the resources and iterate and um, experiment and grow the indigenous methodologies for treating addiction and violence that we have been cultivating for decades. So that's where the critique of the nonprofit the industrial complex and the role of the public health establishment plays in that connects to both issues. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think also you mentioned last week that, um, you know, for what communities to be open um, to approaches like decriminalization, there has to be an effort to address the violence. Um, but the, the violence is often addressed by, again, that public health framework. So can you can you talk a little bit more about why the public health framework, um, why you think it's flawed and your critique of it as it relates to violence prevention? Yes. Um... So I will say that I've given this talk multiple times. Uh, Andy, please link to some of the other talks I've given to this issue because I feel like I have to say, say, say the same thing every time, um, which is important and I enjoy it, but um, I can't get to it all in a condensed segment. Yep. So. We'll definitely link to some of the other ones as well where you go into it more. But... Coming out. I'm sure we'll talk about the report, but people have been doing community violence intervention, Black people, since at the very least the northern migration. So when the northern migration happens, we were separated from our rural community systems in the south, the church, grandma's house. And while there were jobs in the north, the nature of welfare racism, 
made so the welfare services weren't always available. And to the extent they were, they were very much a white Eurocentric framework that oftentimes assumed a level of cultural backwardness of the Northern migration people, cultural pathology. So just looking at the work of Malcolm X in the Nation of Islam in the 50s and 60s, for example, he wasn't just preaching about the white man being the devil. He was creating mosques in cities all over the country, specifically attempting to use the Nation of Islam to mirror his transition from Detroit Red to Malcolm X, viewing Islam as a spiritual methodology to engage people who were in street life, to value their lives, to value their community, to value their women, even if in some paternalistic patriarchal ways, to really improve the conditions of community. That is an indigenous violence prevention methodology. And these are the types of things that not just the Nation of Islam, but Black radicals, the Black Panthers, Christian pastors were doing in the Black community since the 50s and 60s. In the 90s, the public health establishment literally a dude named Gary Slutkin, who was coming from Africa doing, I think, believe tuberculosis research, sees a map of Chicago and sees violence clustering in certain neighborhoods. And he's like, oh, that's just kind of like how tuberculosis clusters in certain places too. And then he sees it kind of spreading throughout the footprint. It's just like tuberculosis spreads. So he says, oh my God, violence is a disease. You know, um, and basically builds this epidemiological model that views violence as a disease through things like retaliation, through things like the degradation of pro-social cultural norms, and sees basically the re-injection of pro-social cultural norms and a violence mediation, particularly after a shooting happens, which is critical, to prevent retaliation as almost like a vaccine to prevent the spread of the disease of violence. Now, this is understandably intuitively persuasive in some ways, Retaliation does almost feel like a disease spreading. Um, you want to contain it. Um, but at a very basic level, just think about what you hear about public health overseas, the Gates Foundation experimenting, using experimental vaccines, the Gates Foundation not investing in indigenous public health systems owned by the country, but bringing his friends over to run the public health system of the nations, the white savior industrial complex, the woman in Uganda who didn't have a medical degree was given the ability to run medical clinics in Uganda, Renee Hatcher, I think is her name. All those critiques of public health abroad apply locally in America. But because we are so um, American exceptionalist and oftentimes so blind to the rest of the world, we see the injection of public health as a benefit because it takes it away from policing as opposed to seeing how public health is a tool of neo-imperialism and colonialism overseas, and they're doing the same thing to our cities here in America. So notice that the, the critical vector of disease is not neoliberalism, it's not slavery, it's not capitalism. It's whenever someone shoots somebody, then we have to intervene to stop that spread. It's almost as if the violence is, is generated out of the air, it's generated out of nowhere. Who is the patient zero of violence in America? You know, typhoid Mary, we're always looking for the first case. I somewhat jokingly, but also not jokingly, offer Christopher Columbus as the example of what was the patient zero for violence in America. And I do it um, not just because it is, it is an explanation of the type of cultural shift in perspective of the epidemiological frame that has to happen to make it valuable, but also dominant academic foundation organizations that can't really say that because they're tied to foundations that want to see America as redeemable. They want to reintegrate a multicultural fabric and that feels too divisive for them. When you are, but on the flip side, you're looking at people like the Nation of Islam, 
who, not just them per se, the actual organization, but people who go through the cultural, intellectual, spiritual system of the NOI, but without allegiance to Farrakhan, without allegiance to the actual church of the NOI. They bring those tools to violence prevention and they are actually empirically on the ground doing work that is being proven to be effective in multiple cities around the country because they're taking a legitimate cultural impulse of oppositional defiance and not trying to quash it as a disease, as the epidemiological public health model says, but attempting to redirect it towards legitimate and real social oppression. So it's very thin line between trying to use public health as a protective tool to protect black people from the accusation of criminality. But tacitly, and unfortunately, I feel too often the frame gets slipped and basically it becomes, whether you say it overtly or tacitly, black people are the disease and they have to be contained by credentialed public health academic employees who are basically bringing the cure to violence to them because they can't cure themselves. And that rides with so much American assumptions of black deviance, but more deeply, it shows that we can't give black community the resources because they're too diseased. They're too traumatized to effectively save themselves. So we as a benevolent, multicultural, credentialed, academic public health establishment, which is still largely white, or given theories by white people that are then operationalized by black bodies and black faces, have to do it for them. Yeah, and and I think I think a theme that is running through uh, both of these conversations is the way that these organizations and institutions pathologize blackness and black people um, as the root of the problem. Uh, and I think you touch on that a little bit here. But how do we see how do we see that happening in the public health treatment of crime? How, the, the yeah. Mm -hmm. So so it's very. I want to be very clear. They would say they're not doing that. They would say they're doing the opposite. They would say that for years, the criminal model has put individual blame on individual people as bad people and bad parents. And that has obviously been racialized. And that by putting it in the public health frame, they are recognizing the social determinants of health, the trauma, all these things that go into producing an event of violence. Um, but if you do not have a lens that takes the culture of, um, anti-blackness, the reality of injected black communal self-hatred, the need to center black self-love and black self-determination as a center to your response to violence, then the only logical conclusion is, you know, maybe it wasn't their fault, but somehow black people picked up this disease of violence. And the only solution is that white people have to come in and save them or again, the multicultural academic credentialed establishment that is going to operate to brown faces, but its ideas are stemming from white theorists. So by omission and not centering on, not, you know, I'm beginning to hate this term strength-based because it's being thrown around like, like so much confetti at a birthday party, mm -hmm. but centering a vision of black people as human beings with a culture and a civilizational trajectory from Africa to America to today, if that's your view of Black people, then you have to look at what they've been doing here in America and start your violence prevention investments in expanding the capacities of the indigenous violence prevention ecosystems they've built. To believe you have to implant a public health methodology into them is to say tacitly, but nonetheless very clearly, they have nothing to build upon. 
And the only logical conclusion of that is they aren't human. Because any rational human being in the face of such oppression, such violence would do something about it. And so it becomes a conspiracy of silence that produces a vision of Black life that is so devoid of dynamism, culture, indigenous capacity, as to think we need someone like Gary Slutkin to give us theoretical interventions about violence. It's insulting. Um, but it's demonstrative of a very particular ideology of the progressive left, which is we need to be benevolent and have solidarity and help these people who are victims of oppression. And one of, I had a very powerful moment a few weeks ago where uh, an elder basically was like, yeah, we grew up under segregation, but I never saw myself as a victim. We never saw ourselves as victims till the white people came and taught us that we were victims from their perspective. And we were victims because we didn't have what they had, which they thought was the best thing in the world. And because we didn't have it, they felt that we must have been victimized. Because the white people couldn't value what we had, so they could only see us as victims and not generators of our own systems. Right. So it's the it's the epistemological ignorance of whiteness that solidifies a view of black culture and black communities as devoid of culture and again really devoid of humanity because any humans any human people would never accept the conditions black people face without building their own systems and cultural interventions into violence and to not center that is to say they haven't done that so you you have a new report coming out um soon that touches on some of these themes and develops on them and uh, develops the critique and develops the solutions um can you talk to us about that report and um what what you hope it will do to change the conversation yeah so the report's called fear of a black planet and it's really designed to like give more specific examples of this larger conversation a part of it is going to address the liberal and centrist continuous need to focus on tough on crime policies when it comes to black people as an extension of an ignorance of black humanity and the inability to believe that black people have their own indigenous systems to address this so a big chunk of us going to talk about like a critique of tough on crime sentence enhancements mandatory minimums things that are literally coming back even in 2024 even under a so-called progressive social justice oriented democratic party of maryland as we saw them introducing in annapolis today of sentencing enhancements that will allow 10 to 12 year olds to be charged with crimes and would continue basically to criminalize black use even though empirically we see uh, youth crime going down my segment is focused specifically on extending this critique of the public health view of community violence intervention. Just take a step back. It's important to remember that community violence intervention does not inherently mean violence mediation, does not inherently mean services. The, the community part of violence intervention is only the community is the target of the intervention. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that word target is very important because it obviously has a double meaning, right? So you can target the community in terms of giving them services, but you can also target them in terms of giving them more bulletproof glass, mm -hmm. giving them more surveillance cameras, um, giving them more floodlights to, to illuminate dark streets. All these things count as quote unquote CVI under the federal definition of community violence dimension. So that's part of the interest convergence that's happening here that the report seeks to elucidate is that our desire to reframe away from the police-based solutions 
means that we're accepting a bunch of stuff that really is basically similarly along the lines of police-based solutions just because we want to get some money for the stuff we want, which is like violence intervention, mediation, mentoring services. So that's part of what I do is deconstruct CBI a little bit, but I go a little bit deeper on the critique of public health. And part of it is bringing in examples from other countries, right? So, um, so for example, you know, um, malaria. Um, people say, well, just give people bed nets and they'll keep away the mosquitoes. And one thing that some people have pointed out is like, you could just, we can build as an African nation a bed net factory and you can buy our bed nets and then we can give them out. Like you don't have to bring your people over to do the bed nets for us. Mm-hmm. We can invest in our capacity because we'll give people jobs and those jobs will probably keep people more healthy than, than them just not getting malaria. They could actually afford decent foods then. But it never occurs to the public health evidence-based philanthropic establishment to do anything like that because centering economic justice and sovereignty is always secondary to this abstract scientist or there's, there's a difference between science as a concept and science as a ideology. So one of the things the piece does is critique the term scientism, which basically turns science into an ideology or a religion. And the abstraction of all social problems into focusing on the actual germ, focusing on the treatment for the actual germ, focusing on abstract populations and obscuring all the things like nutrition, like political power, like sovereignty that can impact people's health more holistically science becomes a tool of European domination because it abstracts the world into abstract abstract concepts that can then be manipulated without actually engaging the reality of human existence. So malaria is one example of this. The malaria vaccine is another example, like part of the theory of the AIDS interventions and malaria vaccine interventions is that, well, Africa could become destabilized if too many people get sick. Africa could become economically unproductive if too many people get sick. So we have to give them AIDS and malaria vaccines. It's not about caring about black life. It's about literally saying from a national security perspective that we have to intervene in these nations. And one thing they literally say is like, who would invest in a malarial nation? You know? So one thing the report points out is that literally that same public health logic is being applied to America, where people are saying, look at Baltimore, look at Chicago, who would invest in a city so deeply impacted by the disease of violence? So it's, again, not about the actual lived existence of these people. It's about the economic ramifications of not treating the disease for them in their world, not for the lives of people in our world. And just um, to conclude, I mean, we go into more specifics about alternative examples of what works, a little conversation about Newark, New Jersey, that cut their murder rate in half using some of these um, culturally specific methodologies. Um, but one thing that I thought was really powerful was, you know, just the inability to understand indigenous practices. So one thing that we do is we relate indigenous violence intervention methodologies to indigenous healers in Africa. Indigenous healers in Africa have been called witchcraft and witch doctors, and but they actually treat the vast majority of illnesses and they can actually provide palliative care as well as culturally responsive care that actually does a lot to improve people's health and general quality of life, but they've been largely ignored by the medical establishment in the West because they don't have any space for the methodologies they use. Because it's not just that they don't see the world through 
only scientific frames. Not that they're totally non-scientific, but they also have indigenous conceptions of disease that include things like um, spiritual disharmony, communal disharmony, injected oppression. I mean, they may call it curses, but recognizing that things can be injected into people's lives and their spirits and their psyches that are causing them great distress. So one thing I realized is that in many ways, when we talk about injected oppression and self-hatred as a generative tool of violence in the Black community, um, it very much mirrors, which, which is an indigenous violence prevention diagnostic tool and methodological tool to understand violence unique to the Black community, it very much mirrors African healers' understanding of illness as injected oppression or being cursed, right? So this abstract notion of what is deemed witchcraft very much mirrors a notion of injected oppression and community disharmony that has been found consistently to be an effective diagnostic tool to understand violence in the Black community. But if you're disconnected from the notion of African-Americans as Africans, if you're disconnected from any value of indigenous medicine, it will never occur to you to look to this diagnostic methodology. It will never occur to you that this methodology could actually be more effective to deal with the quote unquote disease of violence, but disease from an African perspective. And mm -hmm. looking to the history of African people's interventions and our treatment of our own diseases from our own cultural perspectives as a way to think of, well, if we're gonna call it a disease, what we as Africans mean by that term might be different than what Europeans mean by that term. What we as people of African descent mean by public health might be different than what the Eurocentric intellectual establishment means by public health. So even, the limitations of the English language oftentimes preclude um, what seems to be agreement is oftentimes masking very deep disagreement. And the report is an attempt to disentangle some of that so that the distinctions can be made clear and we can build political interventions accordingly. And, and I think one place where that public health and that science-based approach um, takes hold is it focuses on the problem of violence as one that occurs among people who are all involved in violent street crime. Uh, and it, uh, it, it sort of looks at that as the end result uh, of this and tries to treat that. Um, you critique that assumption um, and you argue that we need to address that A, that that framework doesn't uh, uh, cover the actual violence uh, and B, that it, um, that the problems are further upstream. Can you talk about that yeah, framework and, and that approach? And this is some of the stuff that's honestly, this is a truncation of a larger piece where many of that analysis kind of got um, cut out for, for time. But, but yeah, I mean, if you're only downstream, if you're only looking at the actual event of, first of all, it's largely shootings. And secondly, it is largely, um, they, they don't talk a lot about domestic violence. They don't talk a lot about, um, it's a particular type of crime they hold up as an archetypical crime, right? Mm -hmm. And they're trying to do their best to center that crime. And part of it is like, why that moment? Why this response to the quote unquote disease of violence? So if you view it as a illness, the illness only manifests itself at the moment of shooting. Like those are the first symptoms of the illness. But we know that's not true. We know that, you know, there are lots of larger moments in someone's life when they're walking through school mad when they're getting in fights when they're academically withdrawing that are telltale signs of community disharmony and strife that need to be intervened in 
but intervening that far upstream is expensive. And what we know is that if you see the political economy for the reality, which is again, these cities are worth billions, the real estate in these cities are worth trillions of dollars. But the fear of black street crime is one of the core drivers that deter rich people from moving to a city, rich people from visiting a city, rich people from setting up business in the city. You can't help but realize that it is such an acute focus on gun violence in these urban communities because it has such a deep impact on the real estate value. So if you actually look at the accumulated understanding of, again, a historical understanding of violence through the lens of violence done in the prisons, violence done um, to people in jail who then come out of jail, who don't have sufficient reentry, um, and not just reentry from like a human social service perspective, from a psychological and spiritual perspective. We hear a lot about trauma. And one thing I always heard about trauma is that it is the inability to integrate what has happened to you to what you know about the world, which begs the question of even this whole trauma-informed care movement. If an understanding of anti-Black oppression and white supremacy is integral to understanding the violence that happens to you as a person, what does it mean that systemically many of the services being provided do not center that perspective? If if you understand yourself as defective, if you understand yourself as a person who is not worthy of love, if you have internalized anti-Black conceptions of African people within yourself, how does that allow you to integrate anything that happens to you in a productive way as opposed to a destructive way? And I think it's one of the things that implicates communities' understandings of the value of public health services and why they are sometimes lukewarm to some of these services. I don't know if you've heard of this dude, but there's a guy going around, his name is Thomas Abbott, ABT. And he, he gave a talk on YouTube and he's very, he works in CBI, he's very upset. He's like, I don't understand. People keep saying they wanna save black people's lives. But when we come and we talk about the work we're doing, they don't support us, they don't give us the money. And it's like, yeah, because they don't want you to do it. <laughs> they understand there is a constellation of cultural and spiritual technologies you do not have access to. Mm -hmm. So it's not that they don't want the services. They just don't want you and the institutions and ideas that you mobilize to be the only way they get access to those resources. They want to do it themselves. They're not going to tell you that. But that's what they want. And that's why they don't support you. And it's one of those things where it's, it's no way to truly overstate how deep the frustration is in community because community sees people who can go into schools and over the course of months and years change people who people thought could never be changed like i came up in a time where i was in school in the 90s you know nwa the rise of the cultural impetus backlash to reagan focus on african centered methodologies uh black pride you know we sang the black national anthem every day in school kind of the cultural energy that led to the million man march you know that was a part of my lived existence and that was largely a response to reagan a response to crack and we as a community led that so to say that we need to go through white nonprofit organizations to do discrete programming under the guise of a nonprofit under certain designated hours that so deeply constrains the holistic community-based cultural spiritual work that we've seen be so effective in our communities because one thing we know is that they're focusing on people who are street involved, who are 
very much industry game. How do we get people before them? How do we get people who are 40 years old, 50 years old? How do we get people with technologies and concepts in their mind that can change the way they think about moments of conflict from when they're five years old, six years old, before there's ever a fight, before they're ever in the street? And that's the work that we've seen done consistently in after school programs, in Sunday schools, in African-centered youth programming, that is just consistently un devalued by the public health establishment because they don't have a theory to understand this violence prevention in the most acute sense. You know, I mean, you and I were at a funeral um, this week for one of our good friends, Anthony Day, and the incident that took his life would not have been impacted by the community violence intervention programs that these people present. You know, that was a work dispute. The individual was older. You know, so it would not have been in that critical catchment area. It would not have been within the evidence-based framework. And so many people are like, what could we have done to intervene earlier in that person's life to give them a different set of tools to think through the value of Black life, to think through the value of conflict resolution? And it may not have been the type of things that they want to do, which is literally the people who are just about to shoot somebody do anything they can do to make them not shoot nobody. Which, which again, from a pure economic utilitarian standpoint makes sense. Because the one thing they care about is bodies not dropping from gun violence in crowded urban spaces they want to gentrify. But the totality of violence, the interpersonal violence, you know, we get beat up all the time in the black community, we never call the cops. So the burden of street violence is so far beyond what their empirics will ever understand. You know, um, the inter-community conflict, the inter-family conflict that never rises to a phone call to the police, but oftentimes rises to a phone call to the church or to the trusted community members. So us seeing the totality of the role of violence, we understand that the intellectual, spiritual, and political methodologies they are operationalizing are not designed to intervene in that and cannot intervene at scale. And they cannot intervene upstream far enough in a way that gives people an alternative to the larger reality of violence. So they can't help but view it as a little bit, um, you know, Johnny come lately, a little bit exploitative, a little bit like, of course you want to be laser focused on the shooters because those are the people who ruin your property values. We wanna be laser focused on saving our community, which mm -hmm. requires a larger shift in political power, economic power, that is very much at odds with the people who are funding your programs, right? Um, and, and one of the things that I, you know, um, one of the things that I thought was really um, important about Anthony's funeral yesterday um, was at the end uh, when one of his teachers who had invested that time in him and in a, in a, in a series of other students to make sure that they were not making those choices, that they were, um, figuring out how to address the violence that's all around them without resorting to violence. Uh, he addressed the room in a way that um, I just thought spoke perfectly to what you're talking about right now, you know? And uh, he grounded the answer to the problem in those connections to a larger spiritual tradition and a larger history of African people who have been um, oppressed, who have been held in bondage. And he, it, it was the most moving part for me of that ceremony um, to, to hear his address at the end because he had done the work, 
you know, he's done the work that you're talking about. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly that sort of program that would not be deemed evidence-based yep. within many traditional Eurocentric public health foundation criteria. And I think that's where the beauty of what they've done is make the violence and dehumanization of African people appear to be so logical, natural, and even um, almost humanitarian towards African people. Because what they're saying is like, oh, I want nothing but the best for Black kids. So you got to show me the evidence. And the fringe result of that, because they control the systems that produce the evidence. They control who gets an evaluation. They don't have even the epistemological intellectual tools to even do an evaluation that would depict the spiritual, cultural work that's happening in those spaces. Yet they think it's understandable, right? Like, yet they think that through their through their politics and their science, they can understand what is happening and they have no comprehension whatsoever of what is happening because they picture it as violent shooters uh, fighting over street corners. And the reality of the story is that, uh, as the case with Anthony, it's not that story at all. Uh, and, yeah. you know, um, you know, Anthony was not involved in any violent crime. He was a guy who liked to read books, fight for social justice and garden. Um, and, um, he still, you know, he was murdered in the break room at his at his work. And that the thought and the framework that the white progressive uh, believes with believes they can understand that and understand what's going on and offer best practices um, is clearly broken. And I think your report does a really good job of elucidating that. I want to turn to the other side of this. What are the things that you think uh, have to happen? Um, both in practice, uh, in community, and in policy to address this? So um, it's difficult because if if you're not taught to value something, someone's going to tell you to value it. And you're going to be like, what is it? I don't even know what it is to value. So if a service does not center injecting a contextual understanding of the world, oppression, anti-Blackness, and center on building cognitive and cultural spiritual scripts for people to process the trauma of the violence, the structural violence, the poverty, to counter the internalized oppression and internalized self-hatred that America has injected into Black people, if your program isn't doing that, it can't be a best practice. It can't work. It, it, it can work for some individual people. Some of them have already done that work independent of you. Some of them have already figured out that they don't want to be in the violent life no more. It can work maybe from the perspective of just not literally pulling the trigger. It cannot work in terms of comprehensively changing someone's life to make them a person who is genuinely a servant of the community in the way the community deeply values and that comprehensively addresses the violence in community from the perspective of structural violence. So the community has to find a different definition of working than the mainstream public health establishment. So that's part of what we have to center is we have to define what work is because what they have defined as working is literally less gun violence that scares rich white people. That is an illegitimate definition of what works. Even by their own definition, there are examples that are showing that the use of cultural, spiritual, indigenous 
communal frameworks to address violence, specifically through the lens of local control and local funding, are, are having results that may indicate for the specific issues related to violence in the Black community that this is a necessary uh, practice. So the example we use is Newark, New Jersey. Newark, the mayor is Ross Baraka. He's the son of Emery Baraka. Um, Emery Baraka was the MC, the parliamentarian for the Gary Black Power Conference. He led a grassroots community organizing campaign that got a black mayor elected, black city council people elected. Um, so really built a Newark, was part of a Newark community response to the riot of 67 in Newark that centered community control, culture, institution building. And they brought that approach to their community violence intervention ecosystem. So as opposed to bringing in only Gary Slutkin or only the people from New Chicago, they brought in one of the people who helped negotiate the Bloods and Crips gang truce in LA. And they brought him in working with the community, working with Rutgers to lead a community violence intervention. This term is being thrown around too much too, but ecosystem. But it's not just like we built a bunch of nonprofits and called it the ecosystem. The ecosystem has different institutions that play different components. So in Newark, you may have, you know, Minister Abdul Haq and you have his crew, which is more of the, you know, outside Nation of Islam, cultural, spiritual, influence organizations, but they're at the table with Rutgers. They're at the table with the funders. They're at the table with the mainstream nonprofits. And not only are they at the table with them, they're actually given support by the mayor of Newark to say, these guys run the show. The people on the ground run the show and the funders and the nonprofits are responsive to them. The public health people, the mainstream public health nonprofits are a different part of the ecosystem. They may have slightly different beliefs than the people I just talked about but they play their own role, but they also have elements of community control built into their system. So the Newark Community Street Team, is very similar to Safe Streets, but they also take political stances that Safe Streets in Baltimore have not, and from my understanding, cannot take. They're very adamant that the funding from legalized cannabis in New Jersey should not go to the police, but it should go to be reinvested in the community. I don't think Safe Streets ever said anything like that. In fact, um, LifeBridge House, one of the organizations that oversees half of the safe street sites in Baltimore on behalf of Catholic Charities came out in support of sentencing enhancements for people carrying illegal guns during last year's um, legislative assembly. So that's, just, that's an example of a fundamentally different approach to violence intervention in terms of who the ecosystem is accountable to. Because if it's accountable to the black grassroots and community, they're going to be pushing more upstream interventions like community investment. If it's accountable to the white nonprofit industrial complex, it's going to be more oriented towards cooperation with police, foundation funding, and that leads them to support things like increased criminalization, even when national best practice on CVI says don't do that. And um, it's, these distinctions become, because one thing that people have said is like, oh, yeah, we're doing what Newark is doing, because we have nonprofits that do services just like they do. But the arrangement of power and the arrangement of accountability and even the funding ecosystem is so fundamentally different here that it cannot produce the same results. The last thing I'll say on that is like Newark created a local funding pool for its violence intervention services 
um, in 2020, I believe, they took money from the police budget and actually reoriented to create the, this um, Office of Public Safety. This Office of Public Safety works with grassroots organizations, but it doesn't lead them directly. It's a coordinating entity. And when they did the report card for community violence intervention uh, best practices, Newark actually came out 20th of 50 cities, despite cutting their murder rate literally in half, because the report card says the best practice is to have the power centralized in the executive agency and to aggregate foundation money and federal money and disseminate that locally with technical assistance. Newark is doing the opposite. They're taking local money, giving the methodologies from the ground and basically having the ground provide a form of technical assistance to the city and to the foundation. And for that, they are being downgraded by the think tank national mm -hmm. establishment who talks about community violence dimension. It is a perfect example of everything that's wrong with the nonprofit industrial complex. And it's a deep example about the anxiety around Black community sovereignty and Black community control of these resources. Because if Newark is the best practice, we may not need to, it doesn't mean that Slutkin and Chicago don't have a role to play, but they're not the center anymore. The resources don't flow through them. They don't get to control the criteria on every federal grant, on every federal funding application. And, and this is a multi-billion dollar industry that's growing up on the backs of the people who have died in our streets. So we owe it to them to have this level of precision and rigor and to call out people who are hustling off the suffering of our dead. So how does what is happening in Newark that you hold up as the right way, as a right way to do it, compare to what is happening in Maryland and what the Moore administration and the Democrats and the General Assembly are going to do? So that's yet to be determined. I think locally, we are a Bloomberg city. Catherine Pugh said as much. It's very different <laughs> because we are very tied into federal, uh, national, nonprofit, academic, quote unquote, best practices. Um, the state is trying to be more open to some of these concerns, but the people who are at the table, not necessarily because of anything nefarious, they come from more traditional academic nonprofit systems. The state has tried to bring in people who are doing more culturally responsive grassroots work into the juvenile justice system. But one thing that's happening is that there isn't an explicit analysis of what these groups are doing, why it's effective, and why it might challenge academic best practices. What they say is, you know, we're doing services, it's working. And, and to me, you can see it both ways. You can see it as, look, I'm just a person who has some perspective. I got some knowledge. When I'm doing works, they can call it whatever they want. They can call it cognitive behavioral therapy. They can call it motivational interviewing. They can call it whatever they need to call it to get the money. Just give me the money. I just want to help people survive. That's the dominant. That's one of the things that's being unspoken, but that's one thing that's happening amongst the service providers. And one thing that we're saying, it's like there's a limit to what you can do in that framework. So right, the, the state's pretty comfortable with that arrangement because they want the people who can actually get the job done and they want them to be able to be funded by the feds and the foundations. So part of that is like, we're just not gonna talk about the culture methodologies they're using. We're not gonna talk about the system of people who are 
involved in the ecosystem who maybe don't have this level of expertise who nonetheless are empowered to get money and to be part of that ecosystem. And you could accept that at the cost of doing business or you could demand a confrontation with the system that is centering ideas and practices that are incongruent with the culture of the people that are being served that have been proven to not be effective and demand systems be more accountable. I mean, part of our agitation around this issue may have something to do with why some of these folks are getting more contracts. We hope that is the case. But there has not been a public confrontation over the very foundational ideologies that drive this sector. And many people are not in the position to do that because that it, it would put their, their, their livelihoods at stake. So we as a think tank, we as a community-based organization that's not a nonprofit, we take it upon ourselves to really do some of this work and this analysis in ways that maybe other people can't or don't feel empowered to. Because again, this is a multi-billion dollar industry and it's getting bigger every year. But more than that, the assumptive logics that mobilize how money flows mobilize how power and violence flow. So if you say it's the cognitive behavioral best practices academics that are making the solution, you know, if I'm just a person on the ground who's using cultural methodology, it's just like, I don't care. When those same people come back to Annapolis and say, yeah, you should pass the bill that extends probation for young kids, because the more time they are on probation, the more time we can force them to come to the services. And it's like, well, I don't know about that, because the more they're on probation, they could get services. They could also get violated and go to jail, <laughs> you know? But the, the eggheads, the same eggheads that you would gave credit to in order to get the money to do your work are now coming back and saying, yeah, we should tweak the law. We should probably put them on probation longer. You know, maybe if you're a 10-year-old and you have a violent crime, you should go to jail. You know, we should be smart on crime. We should play the middle ground. We should give concessions to both sides. These are the academic liberal orthodoxies that get mobilized to basically recriminalize our use under the, basically, it's almost like, well, if you want the money for services, I need to cover my ass. So I got to pass some tough on crime looking stuff so I can keep giving you money. Yeah. And, and I think, I think, you know, tough on crime policy is the tax that Democrat politicians feel like they need to pay in order to engage in progressive policies. And so I, I think it's really interesting the way that you frame those folks who are on both sides of this all of the above approach. We're going to provide services and we need to increase carceralism. And and, and I think um, last time we talked about the community repair and reinvestment funds as a means of circumventing that nonprofit industrial complex. Do you think the community repair and reinvestment funds play a role in this community violence space as well? I think it could. I think it's going to be up to the commissioners, the people who are on the commission to make that determination. One thing I will say is that independent of the actual community reinvestment repair fund, local funding for community violence intervention at a local municipal level in big cities, at least. I know it's hard when you're in a small municipality. Our police budget is half a billion dollars a year. Can we get CBI to at least a tenth of that? Can we get CBI to at least a tenth of the overtime budget <laughs> for the BPD, which is half, you know, $60 million? 
Um, but this is, again, the ramification of the politics of the space, because one thing you consistently hear CBI people say is that this is not about either or. This is both and. Mm-hmm. So they've been forced to move. That's why I made that comment at the beginning. If CVI works, we don't need to fund police as much. But the tax for CVI to become mainstream is to not go after the police budget. Mm-hmm. And so you'll hear on almost every webinar, they'll say it's not easy or it's both hands. This is not about dimin- diminishing the value of police. And they tell them to say that as a talking point to disarm people's fear that what they're asking for is to defund the police. Now, I've been very critical of some people who, in a very superficial way, say defund the police, fund public health. I think that's not a good thing to say, because I think public health oftentimes is the police. (laughs) But when you start talking about shifting police budgets in ways that force them to put resources where it really matters, detectives, witness protection, community engagement, community oversight and take some places where the money is not needed in the police budget you know bulletproof vests that they don't need cars they don't need overtime they don't need and reinvest some of that into something like community-based culturally responsive community violence intervention we really start having to talk about we have to fund this at a local level so if we do not fund it at a local level Michael Bloomberg and what he thinks Baltimore needs will run our CVI ecosystem. And that's not even to say that he doesn't have research or he has malintentions. He just doesn't know the actual communities creating violence in Baltimore. He couldn't. His program yeah. officers can't. You know? Right. And, and, and so what are some of the programs in Baltimore that you think are working um, and could could benefit from some of that local funding to help expand their work and um, do more of this? So, I mean, I already mentioned We Are Us. That's the one group that we have a long-standing relationship with. And I don't want to center them solely in the space, but they have particular methodologies that they utilize. And I think any program that utilizes methodologies should be considered to have funding. So they pull from the ranks of people who independently have a large degree of credibility and direct experiences in the neighborhoods they're working in. One of the problems with scaling up safe streets, safe streets from that public health epidemiological model has worked really well sometimes. And when it has worked really well is when it has had people who worked at safe streets, but their accountability was to the community. And they were from that community and they brought indigenous cultural perspectives and called it CBT or whatever. In the scaling up of safe streets from one or two sites to 10 sites, it's been difficult to replicate that relationship. So we are having that relationship is necessary, but not sufficient, not sufficient to their effectiveness. Another thing that I think has been effective with We Are Us is that they have incredible integrity in the way in which they provide their services. So one of the things they say is like, look, having connections to the street is important. Having credibility with street kids is important or street youth, street men. But if you're engaging in some of the methodologies they engage in, for us, that's a no-go. So you can't be selling drugs, you can't be using drugs. That's not to demonize drug use. We just talked about it. You know, decrim, addiction is a disease, people have the right to pursue pleasure. But for them, they're like, look, part of what we're saying is that we're offering people a way to get beyond the street life. We can't, that doesn't work if we're in the street life with them. 
So for their model, having a high degree of rigor and precision around them having credible messages from their perspective of credibility and having that backed up by the community has been important to their success. I think similarly, they have a model of human development that they may not call African-centered or Afrocentric. They may not call directly spiritual. They may not use the academic words I use, but I think they're doing things like redirecting oppositional defiance away from the lateral aggression that leads to community violence and towards productive confrontations of larger systems of oppression in a matter of self-development. So I think it's very difficult to have objectivity and what is often a art, a spiritual science of violence intervention. But I think these are examples of clear, objective, methodological innovations that effective violence prevention organizations have utilized throughout the decades. Very few of these things will be seen <laughs> as best practices in the CVI manuals. Some of them will actually say the opposite. <laughs> you know, and I think this is kind of what we're trying to get to. And it's like we need to have a clear, direct confrontation and presentation of an alternative conceptual framework for what effective service vision is from our perspective as a community. It's not mumbo jumbo, it's not voodoo, it's not the community just like them. They have a theory about what they're doing and they've been doing it for years. And other people who are doing similar things need to have similar levels of support. I think that's a, I think, I think that the, having a clear theory of why it should happen and why it works outside of what public health deems effective, but instead based in, in enduring relationships in the community um, feels like a really good conclusion about what needs to happen here in order to um, in order to address this problem. Um, and I, I, I think we're getting close to an hour and so I want to wrap up soon. Um, but is there before we before we end, is there a, a closing that you want to give that, that um, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's a lot of, we know it's a lot of anxiety about the quote-unquote pragmatism of the perspective we're using. Even amongst people who do these services from the perspective we're utilizing, they're like, we've been struggling to get funded for so long. The spigots finally open a little bit. We know these people don't understand what we do. But if we can play in their space just enough, can we keep getting enough funding so I can keep hiring people? Because if I don't hire them, they may go back to the street. So I think this is an example of how we are a captive people. We talk about these conditions replicating a plantation. I think that's an example of the plantation reality that we all have to survive in. So we're not judging how anybody chooses to survive in the midst of captivity and white supremacy. What we're saying is that for us to ever liberate ourselves from this perpetual exploitation, what Joy James called the captive maternal, which systems utilize our love and desire to liberate our brethren, to force us to do the reproductive work, to solidify the systems killing us and oppressing us. We have to be precise, not just not just speak truth to power, because another term I kind of hate a little bit, because that makes it feel like you just wild and not saying anything. We need to have a precise analysis of the political economy that drives the investments. We have their precise understanding of the limitations and what they are, what they want at the cost of their investment. 
they're not going to tell you that, but you have to analyze the political economy and come to that determination. We've come to the determination analyzing the political economy of these investments that there is a severe limitation in the willingness of the funders within this space to fundamentally engage with the conditions that drive criminality in our community and a fundamental limitation to cede power in the critical space of violence intervention. Because as I've said before, whoever stops the bodies from dropping in Baltimore, they own this city. They're the key to multiple billions of dollars of investments coming to fruition, being profitable or not. And it's not even a critique of these of power. Power does not want that power in the hands of working class black people who are, who are not accountable to them, independent of any of the spirituality, Afrocentric nation, Islam, whatever. They do not want that kind of power in working class black people's hands who are not accountable to them for their paychecks and livelihoods. That is a, it feels like a callous way to think about quote unquote progressive foundation folks. But as I said, there's $6 billion in development within two miles of downtown Baltimore. You have to be realistic about this is an industry. They want certain outcomes. They want certain outcomes that certain people will feel and trust. Certain people are here in Baltimore doing violence work because they have to stand up for approval from Harvard. Intelligent, affluent liberals feel and trust these services work because they have that stamp of approval. They may do good things. They oftentimes subcontract to black people in community who actually have the culture responsive methodologies, but then they take the credit for their work. And the reality is, as long as that dynamic is in place, we're never gonna be able to scale up and do the level of services needed to genuinely intervene at the core of the systems that drive violence in our communities, as long as we are forced to literally subcontract or metaphorically sharecrop within the nonprofit plantation built for us by our oppressors. And if you want genuine investments in black community sovereignty, you have to demand a shift in not just resources, not just giving people money, but power and expertise in the industry of violence prevention to the people who not only deserve it, they also happen to be the most effective at doing it, which is the black grassroots organizations operationalizing these uh, culturally responsive liberatory methodologies. Uh, thank you, Lawrence. That is a great way to put it. And I think that the when we're having these conversations about redistribution, it has to be wealth, but it also has to be power. And if we're not redistributing power, uh, then none of the rest of it matters. It all has to go together. And I, and I think that you emphasize that really, really well there. Um, this is a hard conversation. You know, we were at a funeral of a friend yesterday, uh, and it is not the first funeral that either of us have had to go to. Um, but it is an important conversation because, um, and not because of the investment dollars, but because of the lives in the community that is being destroyed every day. And I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this today. Um, after we, you know, saw buried a friend yesterday. Um, it, it, it's hard, but I'm really happy that we had an opportunity to do this. I think you have really important things to say about this that, um, that people need to hear. How do people yeah. get in? So I just want to show this really quick. This is um, Anthony Kalima Bob Buster. He's a young man who we talked about. And it's important to understand that because I struggle with the concept of how do you honor your honored dead? And you honor them by doing an unflinching 
analysis of what we have to do to liberate ourselves and our people. And if yep. you know anything about Anthony, he will not accept it anything less than a direct confrontation with the obfuscation propaganda and its intellectual political limitations of the people who, you know, are currently in power. So I just wanted to share that. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, I appreciate that. And, you know, um, when I talked to him at some point in the fall, he was going to come on this podcast and I'm really sad that we don't get to have him on this podcast. And maybe, um, you know, like, I appreciate this show happening today as a means of honoring him and taking the legacy forward. Um, thank you, Lawrence. I really appreciate it. Um, how do people get in touch with you? How do they follow your work? How do they read this report you have coming? Yeah, the report should be out in a couple of weeks. It should be at lbsbaltimore.com. Again, we're not a nonprofit. We are a grassroots think tank. Um, you know, we get more grassroots donations that help us do our work. We do fee-for-service consulting. So if you want to donate, go to lbsbaltimore.com. Um, but my email is lawrence at lbsbaltimore.com. So email is the best way to get to me personally. But I'm also on Facebook and Twitter, um, Instagram. Um, it's at Neil Nubian. So it's N-E, the number zero. Nubian, N-U-B-I-A-N on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. It's just Lawrence Grand Prix. Um, we have a lot of work at the General Assembly. We have to fight these. Um, again, these are Democrats who see themselves as taking the middle ground. They're saying we're not going to repeal the youth justice bills. We're going to tweak them. We're going to be smart and take a sensible, incremental approach to addressing limitations in the previously existing youth justice bills. But as we stated before, these things can snowball very quickly. And the ideology presented still proposes a notion of black criminality amongst our youth that is dangerous policy and just incongruent with the stated commitments to social justice um, these politicians and folks have presented. So we're going to do a lot of work minimizing and fighting all the criminalization policies that are coming out of Annapolis that we can. So please sign up for our email listserv. So go to lbsbaltimore.com. Look, y'all, social media is downranking a lot of political material, especially from small grassroots organizations. The best way to know what is going up with us is following us via email. Um, so please check the emails. We have another podcast, um, Streets to the State House, where our director of public policy, Dave on Love, comes on, I believe it's bi-weekly, and talks about the things going on in Annapolis. All laws are passed within 100 days from January to April. So it's fast moving, it's fast paced. But the more folks we have calling, texting, really trying to intervene in this system of recriminalization of our use, the better. So don't think that emailing and calling really, really means something because these lawmakers are not used to anyone even knowing what they're doing, not less caring. So if you can, please sign up for our email listserv. Please listen to the podcast. Please keep in touch with us. And we're going to continue to work on funding grassroots organizations and building upon the youth justice victories we've had over the past 10 years. Excellent. Thank you, Lawrence. We'll put all of that stuff in the we'll put all of that stuff on the YouTube description. We have Davon coming on to talk about some of that work soon. Um, and um, you know, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate the, these two conversations with you, and I hope we get to have more of them with you. Um, and just thank you so much. Um, yeah, no, you know, I appreciate that, and I appreciate you um, setting up the call, and I appreciate all the work that you're doing. Thank you. All right. Um, that's it. Uh, thank you all for watching. We'll see you soon and we'll keep having these hard conversations, but these necessary conversations.